Welcome back to episode three of Equanimity. You've probably heard us say this before, that equanimity is a religious philosophy. And what ancient religions, like Hinduism, try to teach us to be in pursuit of. So on this podcast, any exploration of this idea, I thought, needs to circle back or understand equanimity from a spiritual perspective. That brings us to our next guest, Hanish. You want happiness? I'll give it to you. Then what? Are you just going to sit there and be like happy little Buddha and rub your belly and laugh? That's not the end all of life. He's a Hindu priest and he's 24. Trust me, you'll hear me repeat this a lot because I just can't wrap my head around it. His perspective and ability to articulate tradition in a contemporary way is what makes our chat so powerful. We go into things like, what is faith? Why does that matter? Why does religion have so many rules? Or does it really? Does religion just need a rebrand? And more importantly, how does equanimity play into any of this? These are the big questions in life that we all kind of think but never really stop to ask, and so today, we do. This conversation uses Hinduism and the teachings of its scriptures, something you'll hear Hanish refer to a lot, as a blueprint to answering these big questions. But regardless of how you identify religiously, I believe there's something here for you. Hanish. Hi. Welcome to Equanimity. This is exciting. This is really, really exciting. Actually so excited about this conversation, I don't even know where to begin. Oh gosh. But I guess I'll start with like the building blocks of how we got here. Maybe like the facts, so to speak. (laughs) You're 24 years old. Mm -hmm. You are a pujari or a Hindu priest. Correct. To me, that's like the fact that you share both of those things is fascinating. From someone who is technically Gen Z and a practitioner of faith, Mm. what does faith mean to you? Faith, I guess, to me would be something that's so inherently related to my identity that it's hard to separate faith from who I am. But it's something that I've had to unwrap and then rewrap. Or I, I don't know how, how else to explain it. It's kind of like you grow up and you think, yes, this is who I am and this is what I love to do. And then as I got older, I think the question started to come where it was like, okay, why do I think this is who I am? And what does this actually mean to me? And that's where faith comes in. And you once like cited a poem to me about faith. Oh, that was such a wonderful poem. The poem goes something along the lines of, Faith is the chirping of the birds in the pre-dawn, knowing that the sun will rise. It hasn't happened yet, but the birds simply chirp because they know. Faith is this like, I know. It's this intuitive knowing. And so... It's very hard, I think, as a, as a person who has to, I guess, explain modern faith. Because for me, modern faith means going back and connecting to tradition. For many other people, it's about breaking old traditions and creating new ones, which I'm all for, 100% for. I'm all for re- revamping you know, old traditions that no longer serve the purpose they were supposed to serve and figuring out what works for us in our context now. But for context, like you really are 24 years old and you've trained to be a pujari. So what does this even mean? Like what does that process look like? You know, most kids when they're 24, 23, 22, my path was really different. Yeah, I can. I've heard I've heard that quite a lot, actually. But in the context of your question, actually, what it meant was it just meant living a whole different lifestyle to start with. So the training started with you come in and, you know, your own. The ashram, basically, the place where I studied the ashram, had very strict lifestyle guidelines. You can't go outside. But many of us went outside to buy snacks. Don't tell anyone. Snacks. Snacks. Seriously. The most random things tempt you when, you're, when, they're, when they're taken away from you. Snacks. It's like tea. Tea was like a commodity that was like, wow, you, you, you're having tea? Oh, wow. Okay. But why is that? Like, why, why in the training of religion... Mm. Is there such an absence of even the small indulgences? Because it's to train us to be able to do without. And when you're 
in an ashram, when you're in an environment where you need to be focused on learning and really honing your skills, the smallest of indulgences are distractions. So it was kind of develop the discipline for small things so that you can develop the discipline for the bigger things. And that was a lot of that was a lot of the training that was given to me was if you learn something, you have to memorize it. So we were taught something. And then once we finished learning it, no matter how many verses it was, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, once you finish learning how to actually chant properly, now your homework is go and memorize it. And we would get tested. So it was like really intense where you go, you learn, memorize, go learn something else, memorize it, come back, practice, 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 practice. Why is this important though? How does this all play into your definition of faith? Oh, girl, do you have all day? I really do. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, Hinduism teaches us that there is no one set way to do things and that we're constantly figuring out our own path. But there are lots and lots of tools and guidances that have come from, you know, great masters, great teachers. And we're fortunate enough to have access to at least 50% of those teachings. The other 50% might be like vernacular languages, lost, lost in translation even. But we have so much that we can actually learn from to help us figure out our own path. And that was kind of what struck me when I was studying in the ashram was that we're learning all of these chants and they each in some way or the other relate to some form of divinity that may or may not be what you're looking for. So the journey, I guess, depends on what you're looking for in this moment in time as well as how much you're willing to give up to gain the knowledge for what you're seeking. I always wonder what the difference is between faith and religion. Ah, very nice. That's a very nice question. I think faith is inherently a quality that we need to develop in order to fully benefit from religion. And so if we don't have faith in the path that we're taking, we don't have faith in the teacher that we're learning from, we don't have faith in ourselves in our own inherent ability to reach the goal that we're striving for, we're not going to get the knowledge that we're seeking. It's just not going to happen. It's a non-negotiable. So in order to benefit or in order to gain whatever you're seeking within religion, faith is absolutely needed. And when the faith is strong, we're able to achieve everything that we need. Which is? Whatever you seek will in its own way come to you if there is faith in the path that you are taking. According to Hinduism, the top, top tier goal is moksha, which means we're no longer bound by our likes, our dislikes, our desires, our habits. And we're no longer bound by the cycle of dying, being born in another body, dying, being born in another body. Like this cycle is continuously happening. And so within the, faith, within the Hindu faith tradition, coming out of that cycle to understand truth in its big letter T, truth, That is the highest, highest goal. Many of us don't want that. Or we don't realize that that's actually what we want. So truth with a capital T is achieved usually when we um, do away with suffering and when we gain happiness. So these are the twofold goals that most human beings are actually looking for. We don't want to be sad and we want to be really happy. That applies to everyone. When we realize that in trying to negate one and achieve the other, there's this constant tussle. And so the scriptures are constantly reminding us in subtle ways that, okay, you want happiness, I'll give it to you. Then what? Are you just going to sit there and be like happy little Buddha and rub your belly and laugh? Like that's that's not the end all of life. You're going to experience all of these human emotions until you're in this body. How are you going to remain equanimous? Beautiful. And that is truth with a capital T. The ability to remain equanimous is one of the definitions of truth in Hinduism. That is receiving happiness and negating suffering? or No, it's going beyond that. Mm. It's going beyond this negation and achieving, negation and achieving. It's the ability to come to that place of equanimity. Exactly. And so when when you told me that it was called equanimity, I was really thrilled that this was the the name you had picked or or that came to you. I think... So much of us are in this like tussle of receiving happiness, then experiencing suffering, Mm. receiving happiness, experiencing suffering. How do you feel like the role of modern faith kind of plays into that and can help that? Within 
Hinduism, we understand emotions are a product of the mind. And mind doesn't like to stay in one place at any point in time. Very rarely will it calm down. And so when we need to make decisions or when we need to do anything important, we need to, in some way, separate emotional reaction from intellectual decision making. And how we do that is quite relatively a process. And so that's why it's so important to have a good grounding in scripture or at least in, you know, a practical sense of what being Hindu means. And I think that gets misconstrued a lot as ritualism or, you know, blind faith. To me, it's like there's so many rules, like you said, about what religion is mm. and is not. Um, even the fact that like you as like a 24 year old Hindu priest, that's a, the reason why it's shakening to me or it's like hard to comprehend is because it doesn't follow the rules of what I believe I thought religion needs to be or is mm -hmm. or um, looks like. And I guess in a modern context, like when you are speaking to people of your age, our age, what like, what do you want them to know about religion or modern faith or what like what do, what are we getting wrong what are we getting wrong we're getting quite carried away i think with what we think religion is and what it really is and it's got so much to do with the media we consume and also the people we hang out with in in the scriptures it's described that we're constantly swimming constantly swimming and we don't know where the shore is but suddenly a boat comes along and it's filled with all of these people who are very knowledgeable and they tell us, come onto the boat, we'll help you. And we, thinking that we can do things on our own, refuse the boat. And the boat has no animosity to us. The people in the boat have no problem with us. They're like, okay, we're here if you need us. That boat is considered satsang, company of people that are in knowledge. We don't like satsang nowadays. It's very hard for us to hang out with people or meet people that have similar thoughts to us because we're so conditioned to think uniquely. And in that very hyper-individualistic thought process, we tend to isolate ourselves and we try and swim alone. But what I guess Hindu, Hinduism really is trying to tell us is you don't have to do things alone. You shouldn't do things alone. And that's kind of where I feel like there's a disconnect. We think we're looking for something, but we're actually not. We want to look like we're looking for spirituality. We want to look like we're looking to be better people. We want to look like we're on this self-improvement journey. But we don't want to take more than two steps forward because we just want to look that way. But what I would really, really hope to see, at least within the people that I do know, is that you don't have to become super religious from an outward perspective. But don't disregard things that you might see as foolish until you've really tested it yourself. We're looking for something deeper, but we don't know what we're looking for or how to go about it. And in some way, faith can really help us. Is the disconnect or the unwillingness mm. religion also says, like, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't eat meat, you should do this, you should not indulge in these things, like... The parameters to experience religion seem quite restrictive. It's so restrictive. It's so isolating. It's yeah. no, like, why can't I or can I if I do want to go out on a Friday night, but then I also want to dabble in this? Is this is that foolish? The rules placed around religion, why are they there? So when it comes to the rules and regulations, it's like it's very easy for us to, to reject them because it's not what we want. We want, like so many of us want to go out on a Friday night. We want to drink. We want to, you know, do lots of different things that the scriptures tell us don't do. The scriptures tell us don't do it, not because they're against fun, but they're, they want us to be in the most appropriate state of mind from which we can learn. So if I tell you on, an, on a night out, hey, let's go listen to, you know, a podcast. You'll be like, leave me alone. I want to do this right now. Because state of mind is not available to knowledge. The scriptures want us to understand knowledge in the best possible way so that not only is it wisdom for us, it's not just information, it's actually our own realized wisdom, but also so that we don't misconstrue anything that we learn. Half-baked knowledge is more dangerous than no knowledge at all. And so 
the the rules are kind of to help us just be in a space where we can learn better like not eat, like not drinking alcohol we know alcohol is not the greatest for our bodies i don't have to be a scientist to tell you this all the scientists have told us this but scriptures tell us this because they're like a healthy body equals healthy mind healthy mind equals healthy absorption of knowledge healthy absorption of knowledge equals achievement of goals so do you want to achieve your goals in the long run or do you want to have fun in this short term moment note i have not said right or wrong or good or bad even the scriptures tell us this there is the path of shreyas which is long term benefit and prayas which is short term enjoyment which do you want prayas is going to lead you here and that's about it shreyas takes a little bit more effort but it will lead you here it's okay we all pick prayas once in a while we really really do but yeah we we just we just lose the we just lose the plot sometimes where we're like what am i actually looking for and the scriptures when they give us these rules and regulations it's to help reinforce our goals in really like layman terms what are the scriptures telling us about where we should be going scriptures are telling you realize who you are that you are not the body that you think you are you are not the name that you think you have you are not the personality that you think you possess you are not the thoughts that you think and you are not the ideas that suddenly pop into your head i have named many things that we inherently believe to be who we are scriptures tell us sorry bursting your bubble you are none of those things so then exactly you've asked the million dollar question who am i that is a question that scriptures continuously tell us ask yourself who am i does it have an answer i am i'm on the path just as much as you are darling i have no idea yet but the rituals that we have the, what the scriptures tell us to do these are all things that help us gain a little bit more clarity along the way and so from my own experience i have experienced the benefit of it and that's why i do what i do which is which is do pujas for people so pujas prayers rituals mm-hmm. i provide spiritual care in some ways help people get through bereavement in ways it's kind of like science only takes you so far business only takes you so far going beyond all of these subjects that we've grown up listening to or hearing about or le- actually learning they take us only to a certain point but when we go into spirituality it's about breaking through all of those barriers and going into like the real hard questions where it's like okay i'm doing all of this but what is it for you know existentialism like literally like all of these things stem because we're breaking past the barriers of what we think we actually need to be doing and asking ourselves why you bring this like young fresh ability to communicate tradition with a language that i speak and you've like studied to cultivate that but what do you want to do with that that's a really really good question i just really hope to at least keep that curious fire alive within our generation i think the world we live in is so quick to tell us what we need to prioritize and tell us what we need to be doing that if we don't keep our culture our faith our traditions to whatever extent they need to be kept alive we're going to lose out on it completely and it's like when we see so much being spoken about in a ne- so much of religion being spoken about in a negative light i feel like it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater we refuse to see the original context in which these traditions came out and it's almost like we we give in we give in to the negativity of it all and we say let's just do away with all of it and start from scratch are you seriously telling me that you think us in our 20s 30s 40s are going to be able to come up with the depth and wisdom of traditions that are thousands thousands and thousands of years old there's no chance there's no way we can come up with the immense knowledge that we've been gifted and if we choose to look at the black spot on the white page we're going to lose out on so much unnecessarily so for me to be doing what i do sharing what little bit i know it's in the hopes that we'll all get a little bit more curious we'll all get a little bit more inquisitive about our faith and our traditions and we'll ask to know and not ask to challenge 
when we ask to challenge, we close ourselves off from any opportunity to learn because we just want to be proven right. But when we ask to learn, it includes, it pulls everybody into the conversation. It, it creates that boat on which we all can kind of get past this ocean of, you know, frustration, tiredness, capitalism, you know, all of those things that are really bogging us down. We need a boat. And that boat, unlike my earlier metaphor, isn't just going to come floating out of nowhere. We have to create it. So maybe in a way I'm trying to put together this boat. So let's talk about revamping. How do we update where we're at with spirituality, scriptures, traditions, rituals, and how those to sort of accommodate the complexity of the modern identity? There's so many things that, you know, we assume religion says as good or bad, right or wrong, which may not necessarily be true, mm. but it's something that's been interpreted and passed on, like different identities that people have, different ways that people live their lives, different people that people love, how they love, who they love. Mm. All of these things we feel are very prescribed by religion. Are they? Spirituality is is a subjective science, whereas the world we live in likes to be as objective as possible. doesn't always work. There are guidelines. They're there to create some sort of structure. Those guidelines will work for a majority of people. And you will always have a minority that will find themselves unable to follow or conform. Scriptures never condemn those people or tells them you are wrong for not being able to follow these rules. It simply says, okay, here's what you can do instead. Let's say there's a queer Hindu person present. You want to be able to have some sort of guideline by which you can say, okay, I think I'm on the right path. For people that want to get married and want to have like a straight relationship, it's very easy for them to follow a Hindu context because it's very laid out. As a queer person, it's very hard to do that. So you have to go a little deeper or you have to take a route that's a little less traveled. These rules actually create structure so that we can ask the bigger questions. But if not following the rules helps you ask the bigger questions, by all means, that's fine. When we're able to go deeper, then we're able to understand that even these rules, they need to be dropped at some point in time. It doesn't matter whether you're queer, straight, what you identify as, who you love, or how you love. Because at the end of the day, am I those things? Or are those things just a part of who I think I am, who my personality is, what my personality is? Understanding that is very much a key part of Hindu spirituality. That when we're able to understand, I'm not this body, I'm not the, my, the thoughts that I think all the time, I'm not so many of these things that I hold on to, I'm actually so much more than that. It frees us from a lot of the anxiety that we feel rules are, that rules create. We feel like rules create too much restriction, but actually these rules act as like a crucible in which our knowledge, our mind can actually really concentrate itself so that we can break free from any restrictions that we think we have. I want to lean into being queer and a Hindu priest because a lot of times we feel like that's an identity that religion doesn't support or we're told that religion doesn't support that. Mm -hmm. How has that been for you? And how has like reconciling or coming, communicating who you are, mm. how has that journey been like? In the context of Hinduism, which is the only one that I can comment on because I practice it, we are taught from day one that you are divine and that there is nothing inherently wrong with you. If you feel there is anything wrong or if there is something that doesn't sit right, it's because the mind is somehow conditioned to believe it. And so in scriptures as well, there are lots of examples given of people that don't conform to gender or sexual norms. And they're never really judged for it. 
it's a constant reminder that you are perfectly fine. You're perfectly, you're perfect. But you, the small identity that you have is not perfect. So me, Hanish, is not perfect. And that's okay. But me, truly who I am inside, is perfect. And every time I lose sight of that, I have to re-identify. I have to reaffirm that, no, I'm getting carried away by who I think I am. And I must remind myself of who I truly am. That is joy, abundance, freedom, and love. And so if I'm constantly reminding myself of those things, I no longer see queerness as something wrong or something that religion, you know, demonizes. I think that packages it in a way that, like, if you are bigger than your identity, then whatever your identity is, is perfect. Yes. But the flip side of that is... Yes, I love flip sides. Please, let's, let's... The flip side of that, I guess, is like, are we saying that the identity of being queer is imperfect, is wrong? Therefore, that's why we need to go bigger than that to say it is that you are perfect. Like in your example, and this is like probably a really big misunderstanding of what you said. So, um, But if you say like, I, Hanish, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect not because you're queer, but mm. you're you're not perfect because of That's a so much. Very right? good clarification. Yes. I am not I Hanish am not perfect because I think I am only Hanish. I think I am only a pujari. I think I am only queer. Because I limit myself to those identifiers, to those labels. Social constructs, really. Really which are necessary for some people. I agree. Labels are very, very important to some people. It helps create structure. It helps them create a sense of grounding. Very, very important in their own place. In spirituality, we're all about saying, yes, this is the label I have picked. This is the label that is on my head. Now I consciously drop. I know that this is not who I am. I know I can pick it up when I need it. And I know I can drop it when I choose. So whatever the label you have, yes, whether it be married to a woman, whether it be married to a man, whether it be having seven children, whether it be a CEO or a housewife, whatever that label is, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with the label ever. It's no. just the fact that labels exist is imperfect. No, actually, oh. it's the fact that we hold on to these labels thinking we cannot do without them. If I'm not a housewife, who am I? If I'm not a CEO, who am I? We hold on to these labels thinking that this is the be all and end all of my life. Spirituality tells us there is more to this. So consciously drop, consciously put this away. So the labels themselves exist and they serve a function. The imperfection comes when there is dependency on them to affirm who we are. So I'm glad you wanted to clarify this because I think what I had said earlier might have been might be misheard. When I say that queerness is imperfect, it is not queerness that is imperfect. It is the label that we hold on to thinking this is the be all and all of who I am. And we identify, we over identify with it to the extent that we lose sight that this is one part of bigger picture. And the bigger picture is how we love, how we live, how we interact with life. Mm is to help us question ultimately who we are. Yes, and find the answer or find the path that we can take to get to where we know who we are. And the interaction or the playground or what sort of tools we use to then arrive at that question is almost irrelevant. Almost irrelevant, I agree. We've spoken so much in this conversation about like, the role of religion in our lives, the role of Hinduism, what it teaches us, and really like leveraging on your ability to communicate that to a younger audience. But we haven't really spoken so much about you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I want to do that. At some point, you're you know, you're graduating from high school. I I guess at this point, you're kind of like going to the, you're going through like the cadence and the rhythm of like a normal teenager. Mm -hmm. And you go to college. Yes. 
So you did that. <laughs> I did. I did. I okay. went to university. I became a physiotherapist. So up until we're 18, 19, on the outside, you look like what I would quote, like, I hate saying this because there's no such thing as a normal, normal. kid. Um, <laughs> there really is no such thing as normal. And actually, that's the entire point of this podcast. But I look like the common average person. <laughs> Even worse. That is an even worse way of saying that. <laughs> when does this path really start to become clear to you? When I was 16 or 17, Swamini Supriyananda from the Chinmaya Mission in Hong Kong, she asked whether I would like to learn how to do pujas because there are regular pujas that happen at the ashram in Hong Kong every month. And she needed a bit of help conducting them once in a while. So I agreed and I did it because I had an interest. I was like, this seems really cool. I could, you know, help give back in a little small way of my own. So I learned how to do the pujas. And when I went to university, the first year that I was there, I somehow ended up taking over the learning coordination for the Hindu society. And in the process of putting together content for it, some sort of discussion every week, I realized how little I actually knew about the core concepts of Hinduism. And somehow the desire to learn more just came. Along with that came the opportunity at the end of my second year of university to go and study in Coimbatore in South India. And so after I graduated, I had a really fun summer and then I left for Coimbatore and I was there for about six and a half months in the ashram, living, a, I would say, quite an austere life. It was monastic living. You know, you have only three or four sets of clothes. You have no hair. Um, and you have very few things that you need to worry about other than studying and reaching the food hall on time, because if you don't, you get punished. And so the ability to think into that lifestyle came because I prepared mentally for it, I feel. No pain, no gain. <laughs> yeah, I guess. No pain, no gain. But it's like, it, it's kind of like you have, to, you have to sacrifice a little bit if you want to gain what you're looking for. What did you have to sacrifice to get to this place? Even though it perhaps wasn't a sacrifice because what did you give up? Mm -hmm. It's very hard to say because no sacrifice is big enough for this knowledge. It's kind of like if I told you there was this magical stock that if you invested $5 in, you would gain a lifetime supply of money. Would you believe me? I don't know. <laughs> it's very, very unlikely to... Yeah. To, it's very unbelievable. But I'm highly naive, so maybe... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how, that's how I saw it, is that in hindsight, I invested $5 and now I have an unlimited supply, unlimited lifetime supply of just anything and everything that I could ever think of. So it, it may seem like a sacrifice to some who don't want to believe on the returns, but I, I have faith. And so for me, that faith was enough for me to invest that time. And I, the rewards just don't stop coming. Do you ever indulge? Indulge in what sense? Anything. Like, what are your indulgences? When, My indulgences you, are you know, like overly binge watching a TV show. So that's, that's like, is that sin? This million dollar question. Very expensive word, sin. What is sin? Really, what is it? Sin seems to be a very policed concept. Where you're like, oh, doing this is bad. It's a sin. There's so much judgment. Like that so word is much. laced with judgment. In Hinduism, sin doesn't mean what I guess your common lay person would think it means. Like if I asked anyone on the street what sin would mean, I think few people would be like, what's that? <laughs> the other people that know what sin means would be like, it's something that's bad and you go to hell for it. In Hinduism, we don't see sin that way. It's not so black and white. Remember, what's our ultimate goal? Ultimate, ultimate goal? Who am I? Anything that brings me closer to answering that question is merit. 
anything that takes me away from answering that question or takes me away from having clarity of mind, strength of personality, from answering that question, who am I, is sin. Or in a less, I guess, existential way, what is pulling you away from being your best self and achieving what you want to achieve? That is sin for you. So overindulgence of any kind, sin. But sin, not in the way we think sin is. Sin is in the context I've just explained. It is taking me away from achieving my goals. It is taking me away from being my best self. So over binging, binge watching TV show, low-key sin. Yeah. But sin not in such a... It's very hard to take away the, the connotation of sin from the word just by me giving you one explanation. It's very deeply entrenched in, I think, a lot of people's psyche. No, I, I think that that's a really great redefinition of sin. We need, it's, it's actually the original definition. I don't know, this new definition people think of is the redefinition. But OG definition, what's taking me away from being my best self? Sin. Oversleeping? Sin. Eating too much? Sin. But it's okay? Uh -huh. we like to we like we like these little hall passes yeah. <laughs> i see where you're coming from we love a good loophole we really really do um no i'm sorry there are no loopholes when it comes to this you overeat i'm sorry i can't just give you a magic pill that's going to not have your belly ache the next day i mean yes there's laxatives but let's not get into that <laughs> loophole of a definition uh sorry shortcoming of the example but come on like you can't expect to get away scot-free in an existential perspective. It's like you did something and there's going to be some sort of repercussion, whether it's taking you away from who you are or whether it's bringing you closer to who you are. That's what defines whether it's a sin or a merit. When you look at your counterparts, you know, your friends that you grew up with, the people that you go to their houses, you must see so much noise or sin. In a way, but again, that's sin is so subjective, right? Like, if their goal you... is not the same as mine, what is sin to me is not sin to them. But modern society is so unnecessary. Very. <laughs> how do you, like, how are you reconciling with that? What's preventing you from, like, standing on a chair and being like, stop, or give wisdom in a way that it's well-received? I can't. I cannot ensure that it's going to be well-received. I just pray for them. So I do what I can. I do my duty, which is to be the person that helps them understand what's happening. And in a traditional sense, chant for them, say what I need to say on behalf of them to the Lord, to the divine. And that's it. The only way that I can ensure that this wisdom is passed on is by living it myself and by passing it on to people who ask for it. If you don't ask for it, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Some people will be like, oh, I'm, I'm really struggling with my career at this, this point in time. Um, maybe a puja will help. Business is, business is not doing so well. COVID problems were real problems for people. Maybe a puja will help. I can't guarantee you that you're going to become a multimillionaire after this puja. I just cannot. But I can guarantee you that you as a person will in some way be a little bit more open to receiving knowledge you will be a little bit more open to seeing abundance in your life and you'll be a little bit more open to any opportunity that comes your way. The puja is not there to get you what you want. It is to help you be the best version of yourself so you can achieve those goals. We're all looking, at least on a day-to-day -day basis, how to be a little bit calmer, how to be able to do our work efficiently, how to achieve our goals. Faith prepares you from the ground up. You bring up a good point. And pujas. So pujas, prayers, rituals. Mm -hmm. They seem kind of selfish. <laughs> like, they seem kind of against the whole purpose of religion or Hinduism at mm. times. It's like, I want to do a puja or a prayer to, you know, for my office because I want to make more money. I want it to be successful. Mm. Um, I want to do a puja so I can get into the college of my choice. How do you reconcile that? Because the asks of a puja seem to be quite indulgent. Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the purpose of the puja actually, is to be able to ask. The puja is there so that we can ask. The 
in the initial parts of the puja, one of the main, main steps is the sankalpa. Sankalpa means wish, desire, or intention. And so you set that before you start the puja. You say, I am here. And then the priest will chant, on this day, this year, this month, this time, with this star in the sky, with this moon, with moon in this phase, very, very detailed, you know, cosmic calendar announcement that on so-and-so date, we XYZ person have decided to do this puja for, and then the list starts. We ask for faith, devotion, knowledge, blessings of our teachers, blessings of our ancestors, good, strong body, good, strong mind, ability to fulfill all of our goals, ability to fulfill our desires. We ask for all of these things. And then we also ask for, you know, whatever you want to get into the college you want. Okay, fine. We'll ask that as well. You want you want more money in your business? Okay, we will ask for that as well. But the byline, the little fine print of the Sankalpa is, and I remind everybody of this, if there is anything better in store for me, please let that happen. I am expressing my desire to you. Now you please. Do whatever is most appropriate for me. So this is why pujas are so important because they help, one, they help us align ourselves and our actions with our intentions by clarifying what our intentions are. And second, they allow us to practice surrender. Because if I let go of an expected result, my mind is so much more calmer and I am so much more efficient. And I also train the mind to have a little bit more willpower. Because until the puja or the prayer is complete, I don't get up. I don't engage in any other activity at all. So the mind is trained to stay focused and concentrated on the action at hand. We keep our head where our hands are, literally. So puja is inherently selfish by the outlook of it. But when we go deeper, it's all about taking ourselves out of the center of our lives and placing the divine at the center of the actions that we're doing. So yes, we are selfish in some way, but we're practicing selflessness. It's the process of asking, but give to ask. A little bit? Actually, our scriptures tell us that we don't give to ask. We give because we have been given. We have been given so much. And so I am so privileged. I must give. It is not, charity is, not, is a non-negotiable. You must give in charity. Why? Because you've received. How can you be ungrateful? How can you steal? Quite literally, that's what it's called. It's called stealing. If we don't give in charity or if we don't contribute back to the people that have helped raise us or the community that has helped to serve us education-wise, food-wise, entertainment-wise, anything, how can you be so selfish as to not give back? But asking is okay. Asking is okay because it allows the mind to truly visualize what you are seeking. Even though what you're seeking could be short-term gains, not yes. long-term success. Because when we say, please let what's best happen for me, we're now allowing the mind to stay a little bit more calm. Because now I've said, I, I need to learn to be impeccable with my word. I have said, if anything is better for me, please let that happen. Now I must be satisfied with whatever happens. You're telling your mind, you've said what you wanted to say. Now listen to what the divine has for you. This is also maybe for my personal clarification. We use religion and spirituality in this mm. in this conversation. Actually, we've used three terms on rotation. Yes. But I think they maybe all mean different things. Or do they mean different things? Religion, mm -hmm. spirituality, and faith. We, we, we clarified that faith is like a building block. Yes. Religion and spirituality. Religion and spirituality, I would say, are like, the body and breath or kind of like what you see and what's behind it. So it's like religion is the physical aspect of it all. It's the books that you read. It's the rituals that you perform. It's the cultural practices sometimes, maybe not always, but like whatever practices that you do, the physical visible side of, of it is religion. The essence or the philosophy behind it would be the spirituality you need to have both in order for them to be wholesome and in order for them to be faith. I guess faith would encompass both of these. Religion me, plus spirituality plus spirituality equals faith. Yes. At least it, my definition of it would be that way because that's how I see it and that's how I've experienced it. When we say religion, I, I'll try and give you an example of it 
in a way where religion is me pouring ghee into a fire while saying some words. Spirituality is me understanding what those words mean, what offering ghee into the fire means, and how these things all connect to help elevate my personality, elevate my skills, elevate my ability to do what I need to do. So you can know, but you must also do and practice what you know. It's knowing is not doing. Doing is doing. So in order to put them together, there needs to be a connect. You can't just be blindly religious and ritualistic because it becomes hollow. But you also can't, like, you know... Overly woke. You can't, you cannot. You cannot, you cannot be, like, with your head in the clouds thinking I know it all and therefore nothing, you know, you, you end up becoming a little bit, you know, nihilistic. Right. It's like none of it matters in the end. You get, you, you can get a bit bitter and unnecessarily sad about life if you think too much. If you, like, go into philosophy too much without seeing the practical religious aspect of it. So is that why deities and gods are important? It's a method in which to practice spirituality? Yes. Because today if I tell you, I want you to sit here with your eyes closed and I want you to invoke and I want you to call upon the principle of utility and the principle of stability that exists within the universe and governs the way that we function. Now you tell me from a purely spiritual perspective, that sounds really cool because I'm using spiritual words, invoke, I'm using, you know, principles, I'm using all of these words that people use when they think of spirituality or when they speak of spiritual topics, like manifestation. What does that mean? Like manifestation. I'll tell you, okay, now manifest in front of me, invoke, principle of utility, principle of stability. What are you going to think of? Like, are you going to just think of like, random lines and squiggles like it, it doesn't have it doesn't have any concretized right. way for me to connect to those principles it's so crazy that everything that we go through all the feelings that we're experiencing whether we call it manifestation or whether we call it hoping willing wanting mm. all the tools have been packaged in scriptures that are thousands of years old but we just don't know how to tap into it exactly and so like when i when i was learning about this i wanted to scream this from the rooftops like we have all of this knowledge we have all of this information we just refuse to see it in the context in which it was given and make it adaptable to the context that we have now everyone just wants pseudo spirituality that like sounds really cool without realizing that it's actually rooted in so much of what we've already been blessed with yeah like we just want to go to a gong bath but what is that <laughs> yes and we we like oh my god this gong bath thing really it's it's wonderful works well for lots of people but we've had sound therapy in like Hindu culture for so long. It's like no matter whether you're in 1601 or 2022, we we felt the same things. Yes. The things that we felt are the same. The, the human emotions have not significantly changed from their ground, like their actual existence. It's like jealousy existed back then. It still exists today. <laughs> it's just that we, all this time, we see, we've been discounting faith, religion, spirituality, because it's so intimidating. Mm. It's, and it's so, like, it's so forceful of this is good, this is bad. Like we get, I get lost in what I think it should be. And I think this conversation has really educated me into understanding that it's not about those things. It's just basically these tools. Like you said, it's the boat. It's like, Hey, I'm here. I've existed and I know yeah. how to get through jealousy. I know how to get through happiness. But we're just like, no, I'll swim. I'll figure it out on my own because... I'll go to gong baths. Yeah, yeah. literally. Yeah. We just grab onto like driftwood and think we're going to get by. But we need a boat. We need more than just ourselves and our own self-effort. We need a community around us. And I really do hope to try and build that again. We need, religion just needs better branding. You, Yeah, that's just it. But is that bad? Is it bad for me to say that religion needs better branding? No, I don't think so. I think, in fact, you've really hit the nail on the head. You've hit the, you've hit the gong in the I've middle. Hit, I've rung the bell. You've rung the bell. Religion needs a little bit of a rebranding because I think we, we just think we know about it. 
and we're just following we're just falling for stereotypes my goal is to contextualize and modernize the things that we've held on to for so long and we call it hinduism but make it relatable i feel so grateful to have been able to lean on your brain to dissect ch- challenge question and have the benefit of you sharing um every time i have a conversation with you i I feel so energized. I feel like you've passed on so much energy to me and clarity. And I just, it feels so comforting to be in your presence. And I just hope that more and more people get the, this chance to converse with you, learn from you. um, I mean, I learned, I also learned from you. Like every time you've asked me a question, it's really forced me to understand what I believe and what I know. So I I am really grateful that I get to have these conversations and I'm very, very happy to actually have them. I think people have this weird idea that I don't like to talk to people or that as a priest, you don't talk to people or you don't, you know, do things outside. But that's not true. Like I enjoy a good walk. I enjoy a good coffee. I enjoy all of these things, too. So much of what we've done with religion, spirituality is label it as this is what it should be, what it shouldn't be. And this is what you should look like as a priest and do as a priest. But actually... None of it is that. No, it's just very much long-standing conditioning and we really need to go beyond that. Well, thank you. You're always welcome. So there you have it. Modern faith isn't so modern after all. It may need a rebrand, but the questions and answers seem to have always been there. We tend to get so attached to the things that define us and how those labels give us happiness or not. But how can we use faith as a diving board to believe in something more? Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, follow us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. And follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at four underscore equanimity, four as in F-O-R, not the number. We'll be sharing a lot of tidbits, behind the scenes, and more about our upcoming conversations. But for now, that's a wrap. Catch you next time.